Again, welcome. Uh, we're very honored to have with us today a noted sociologist, philosopher, cultural critic, Slavoj Žižek. Slavoj is a senior rec uh, researcher at the Institute of Sociology at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia, a professor of, in the European Graduate School. He has been a visiting professor at several universities, including the University of Chicago, Columbia, Princeton, many others. Um, and he's currently the international director of, Birbeck, of the Birbeck Institute for the Humanities at Birbeck College in the University of London. Um, the Wikipedian horde has deemed him an intellectual outsider and a confrontational maverick. And he comes to us today to discuss his recent book, Violence, a book which challenges us to look deeper into the topic of violence, to see beyond the ephemeral manifestations of violence, a gunshot, an explosion, the clash of metal on metal, bloodstains, and to discuss systemic violence, the violence inherent in our systems of living, our way of life. Uh, in a sense, our age is an age of, uh, the age of technological and biological exploration is an age of philosophical exploration as well. I know that many of us at Google are familiar with this. Um, and to quote Slavoj himself, which I found on the internet, of course, um, the age of philosophy is, in a sense, again, that we are confronted more and more often with philosoph philosophical problems in an everyday level. It is not just that you withdraw from daily life into a world of philosophical contemplation. On the contrary, you cannot find your way around daily life itself without answering certain philosophical questions. It is a unique time when everyone is, in a way, forced to be some kind of philosopher. So let's take this opportunity, please, for everyday philosophy and welcome Slava Zizek to Google. I hope this works. Yeah. Thanks very much. I'm really glad of being here. You know why? Because let me agree with a funny association which came on my mind now. You know of what from my communist youth this scene here now uh, reminds me. Under communism, when I was young, you not only had to work in factories and so on, but you had so-called hours of ideological education, you know, like exactly like now, like during lunchtime, workers have to see to some boring uh, short talk which ruined your lunch about, I don't know, great results of our construction of socialism and so on and so on. I feel like back in old time, we're sorry for ruining your lunch. So in contrast to the kindness of the good guy who introduced me, I would say, please don't let me terrorize you. If your mind is with your computer, go on, go on. I would feel, I would feel bad about it. What I was thinking about what to do here. Of course, I don't want to give the resume of a book. I never was able to be so arrogant. Like I know some guys, poets and so on, who treat themselves as classics, you know, like they open their own book read a paragraph and say, let's now look at what the thinker wanted to say. No, I will, the proper dialectical way to approach this book is, I think, to do the opposite of the book, to focus not on violence, but on what violence reacts to, usually on the everyday texture of our lives, everyday ideology. Now, your first reaction probably would have been here, but aren't we beyond ideology? I mean, am I a, an old Marxist from, you know, like the species which basically died around 1990, who still believed in big causes and so on? No, I will try to convince you that ideology is, of course, not in the sense of big worldview, vision to impose on society, but ideology in the sense of whole complicated network of ethical, political, social, whatever prejudices, which even if we are unaware of them, still determines the way we function. 
is still something which structures our lives. What is ideology? Maybe some of you know this, but I cannot resist repeating this story because it's, uh, it works perfectly. Namely, do you remember, you must, my God, it was endlessly reproduced on Google, that unfortunate uh, interview of Donald Rumsfeld some five years ago, just before the Gulf War, when he wanted to explain why, where is the danger of Saddam, and he used his famous uh, 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 parallel, he basically developed a whole theory of knowledge, claiming that there are, you remember, known, knowns, things we know that we know, then, like, we know that Saddam is the boss of Iraq. Then he went on, there are, uh, there are known unknowns. There are things we know that we don't know. Like, for example, I don't know. I know there are some cars in front of this building. But I don't know how many they are. But I know that I don't know this, no? Uh, then he went on, there are unknown unknowns. In the sense of things that we even don't know that we don't know them. Like his idea was, we, the known, unknown was how many and where Saddam has the, his uh, weapons of mass destruction. Like, we don't know, but we know that we don't know. But then his paranoia was, what if there are unknown unknowns, some secret weapons that we don't even know what they are. Get it? They are more radically unknown. Now, my claim is that, uh, okay, that was his idea. My claim, my joke here is that if you have a little bit of a sense for structural analysis, thinking, you see immediately that something is missing here, a fourth term. Known knowns, we know what we know. Known unknowns, we know what we don't know. Or then, unknown unknowns, the totally other. Like, we don't even know what we don't know. Something is missing the most interesting category. Not the unknown, not the known unknowns, but the unknown knowns. Not think we know that we don't know, but think we don't know that we know. That's the unconscious, that's ideology. All those silent prejudices which determine how we act, how we react, and we, in a way, they are so much the texture into which we are embedded that we literally don't even know that we know them. And I think this was why you were in such a trouble in Iraq. Not so much that you, there was some mystery that you didn't know. The US Army and administration basically didn't know what they already know. All the unconscious political military prejudices, as it were, which determined their activity. Which is why, I don't know if some of you know it or not, to give you another example, I'm sorry for repeating myself, I hope you're a new public here, the analysis because of which, and again, it was mocked endlessly in Google, it brought me some negative fame, but I still think it works perfectly. Of these unknown knowns is the structure of toilets in our Western civilization. It's ideology at its purest. Now I will say, am I crazy? Where is ideology? Uh, did you notice something? I simplified the analysis, but I know I simplified, but basically it holds, I claim. What do we get? We have in... Uh, we get three basic types of toilets. The French one where, sorry for relative vulgarity, where the hole is in the back of the toilet 
so that shit falls directly into the hole and disappears. I mean, not the hole, I mean, not just the bowl, but the hole where then, you know, get it. Then we have the German type where the hole where the shit disappears is in front, so that the, the shit is somehow displayed there. You know, Germans have all this ritual of, I'm not kidding, uh, around 50% of toilet, toilets check it up if you go to Germany are still structured like this, that the sheet is displayed there and they have this old ritual every morning you should smell your sheet, check it for traces of, uh, I mean, Erika Young in her Sphere of Flying makes a wonderful comment. He said, she, she writes, a nation which had such toilets, they, no wonder they, 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 they imagined Auschwitz and all the horrors. <laughs> Okay, then you have the Anglo-Saxon, American and so on, toilets, which are mixed. It's not, doesn't matter where the hole is because it's all full of water so that the sheet floats freely there. Now, I was always intrigued by this. I asked my friends, architects in one of the other country, why this? And uh, they tried to give me um, utilitarian answers. Like Germans said, isn't it natural to inspect your sheet? Uh, French said, shit smells, let's get rid of it. Uh, Americans and Englishmen said, uh, let's be practical, it should float in water so that it doesn't smell and so on. But obviously, it's not purely a utilitarian level. Then I ask myself a simple question. Where did I already hear this trinity? The, the, let's call it a French, German, English, Anglo-Saxon civilization. Do you know that... Already 200 years ago, the, there was around Hegel's and French Revolution time, there was this popular idea among philosophers and so on about so-called European Trinity, claiming that the spiritual backbone or fundamental structure of Europe is composed of these three nations. Each of the three stands for a certain political principle and for a certain sphere of society. Uh, Germans are politically conservative, and sphere of society privilege there is uh, 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 Germans are a nation of poets, thinkers, and so on, culture. France is, uh, is uh, revolutionary, and the preferred political sphere is politics. Uh, Anglo-Saxon universe is more, uh, how do you call it, uh, liberal, centrist, utilitarian. The political sphere is economy. And then I got it. That's it. That's the key. French revolutionary. Shit disappear. Liquidate it as soon as possible. You Anglo-Saxon, more pragmatic. Float it there. Let's see how it's a utilitarian approach. Germans, metaphysical and poets, reflect it and so on, you know, conserve it. <laughs> and then I spoke with architects and they admitted it, crazy as it may sound. That's the only way to ultimately account for a totally vulgar object like the concrete structure of a toilet. You see now my point, which is slightly more serious, not only a tasteless joke, that even to account for the most elementary vulgar object, how it is structured, the whole, I wouldn't say worldview, but basic attitude towards civilization and so on, it's not just an, a utilitarian object. This is what interests me, this type of ideology. Ideology which is all this set of cultural and so on prejudices which structure our daily lives. And you don't even have to be fully aware of them, especially today in our so-called cynical era, where very interesting things are happening. 
How do we deal with ideology today? Maybe you know it, it's also endlessly in Google, uh, uh, the wonderful anecdote about Niels Bohr, you know, Copenhagen, the quantum physics guy. The story is a wonderful one. The story is that once a friend visited him in Denmark, in the countryside where he had a house for go there to weekend, whatever. And the friend, also a scientist, saw above the entrance a horseshoe. I don't know, I don't know how it is here, but in Europe, horseshoe above the entrance door is a sign of, uh, it's a superstitious item destined to prevent evil spirits to enter the house. So the shocked friend asked him, wait a minute, are you crazy? Why do we have this here? Do you believe in it? Aren't you a scientist? Niels Bohr answered him, my God, I'm not crazy, I'm a scientist. Of course, I don't believe in this shit. Then the friend asked him, if you don't believe in it, why do you have it there? Ah, he gave a wonderful answer, Niels Bohr. He said, of course, I don't believe in it, but I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. That's how ideology functions today. We are, we are all cynics. Who believes what and so on? But we somehow rely on it that it will work even if you don't believe in it, how should I put it? We, in this sense, we live in a cynical era, not cynical in the usual sense, bad people manipulating, but in, in much more refined way. We practice beliefs without believing in them, as it were. And this is what fascinates me in ideology, especially today. The old image of ideology was you have some explicit beliefs, and then privately you let it know, oh, I'm not crazy as that, and so on. Today it's the opposite. What was once private is now public, and vice versa. Privately, we like to play that we are not crazy to believe in some stupid ideology. We just, what is ideology today, explicitly? I think some kind of a vaguely Dalai Lama spiritualized hedonism, no? It's no longer do this, sacrifice yourself, in spite of what Republicans are saying. They just react to it. Basically, ideology today is some kind of a vague injunction. Be truly yourself. Realize your potentials or whatever, and so on, and so on. But I claim we believe much more than we, than we appear to believe. We obey, or whichever way you put it, much more than we, much more than we appear to do. And uh, this, again, is what all the, this tension between, let me call it, explicit beliefs or absence of beliefs, and this cobweb of, to put it in the terms of your great philosopher Donald Rumsfeld, of the uh, 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 unknown knowns, this is the crucial dimension. At the end, I hope I will have time, I would really like to mention briefly even the whole Sarah Palin phenomenon, I think, is you cannot understand it without, not toilets, let's forget that, but it will, uh, because, <coughs> uh, sorry, okay, let me go uh, a little bit further here. Did you notice another extremely interesting phenomenon about which I've written and which points in the same direction? What my friend, Austrian philosopher Robert Faller, you can Google him to be tasteless. You know, I will endlessly repeat this joke being here, uh, at least on the German Google, you find him. He, provo he proposed a wonderful category of interpassivity. The idea is that it's not only that we like, in what we philosophers call cunning of reason, that we like manipulate others. So you sit back, others are active for you. 
Robert Fowler drew attention to a much more mysterious phenomenon, opposite one of what he calls interpassivity, where we transpose onto the other our passive reaction. Others are passive for us. The most elementary phenomenon, and I love it. This, I think this is arguably the greatest contribution of American civilization to world cultural heritage. Can't laughter on TV, you know. When Just think about it. It's a much more mysterious phenomenon than it may appear. It's not, as some wrong Pavlovian psychologists think, the function of you hearing the laughter there as part of the soundtrack is not automatically to trigger your laughter. No, it works so that literally the TV set laughs for you. At least that's how it works with me. I look, it's really the same thing as you remember those, uh, I always like them, in Tibetan Buddhism, those praying uh, wheels or meals and so on, where you write down a prayer, you turn it around, or even better, you let the wind turn it around, and then you can masturbate, whatever, it doesn't matter. Objectively, you pray. You pray through. It, here it's the same. It lasts for you. My, that's my experience. You know, in the evening, you arrive home that tired. You put on some stupid show with can't laughter on TV, cheers, friends, whatever. And you don't even laugh. The mystery is admitted. At the end of the show, you feel relieved as if you have laughed. That's the mystery, how it works. And my thesis, back to Donald Rumsfeld topic, is that it's the same with uh, beliefs. It's not so much that we believe. We need, as it were, another one to believe for us. From This is how our rituals function. For example, take Santa Claus. I mean, of course, nobody believes. I mean, parents, if you ask parents, they say, no, we are not crazy. We uh, pretend to believe not to disappoint our children. But I can guarantee you, if you ask them, the children, they said, no, I'm not crazy. We pretend to believe not to disappoint our parents and to get presents and so on. You got the point. Nobody has to believe. Only if every individual actually existing presupposes another agency to believe, then Belief functions, the whole system of belief functions. The first to use this structure consciously, politically, it's, you know, the old Israeli prime minister, Golda Meir, who, when asked, do you believe in God? Of course, she didn't. I mean, that's the irony. Israel, who makes his claim of the West Bank, like God gave us this land, is, and I like it for that, avoid misunderstanding, is the most atheist country in the world. According to statistics that I read there, uh, uh, about between 60 and 70 percent of the Israeli Jews don't believe in God. And the irony is that, uh, so Golda Meir was asked this. Her answer was, no, I don't believe in God. No, she didn't answer. She just answered, uh, uh, I believe in Jewish people and Jewish people believe in God. But the point is that there are no individual Jews who have really to believe in God. Everybody just has to evoke this specter. And so the most terrifying experience is when you learn, not that you don't believe, but that the other, which was in a way the guarantor of your belief, doesn't believe. If you know a little bit of uh, literature, that's the, so shocking. You remember Age of Innocence, Edith Wharton. At the end, the guy, okay, I speak in cinema terms, Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> uh, is told by his son that Winona Ryder, his dead wife, knew all the time about his affair, 
with Michel Pfeiffer, but uh, pretended not to know. When he learns it, everything is ruined. That's, I think, our much more fundamental need than directly to believe. To have another one as protected innocence. So let me go on a little bit here after we return to ideology, to explicit ideology. Uh, how do these prejudices function? They are something much more complex than it may appear. Recently, three months, two ago, I gave a talk at Harvard. At the end of the talk, with, we were invited, you know, this is the most boring part of academic meetings, where we had an official dinner where, you know, people who are really bored by each other, you have to pretend, and so on. So uh, the older professor who was coordinating dinner, 10 of us, said, okay, since we don't know each other well, please, can everybody here present him or herself? State your name position, state your work, field of interest, and your sexual orientation. Now, this shocked me a little bit. For my European sensitivity, like, my idea was almost, you know, like, uh, what's none of your business, no? But now I don't want to play the vulgar anti-America, American bashing, because, you know, this bar of discretion is just different in Europe. Immediately, I remembered how a friend of mine visited me not the, the previous summer in Europe, and we went to the Slovene coast, where Slovenia, you know, we were already under communism, sexually, culturally, a very liberal country. So as in most of Europe in the last 20 years, most of the women were simply with naked breasts, no bra on the beach. It's considered totally normal. Nobody even notices it. Here, I'm told it's not so normal. Like, I was told you can even get arrested or what. And typically, that friend of mine, leftist, liberal, whatever you want, felt oppressed, almost harassed, aggressed, totally traumatized. So you see, here we have a nice difference. And again, I think that the formula, which is closer to me, I don't think discretion means oppression, is the proper attitude is the one, maybe you know the anecdote, Gore Vidal, your writer, gave the best formula of discretion. He was, he's a well-known bisexual. He was asked in a TV interview some years ago, was your first sexual experience with a man or with a woman? You know what was his answer? I was too polite to ask. That attitude <laughs> is for me the proper one. Let me go on a little bit to show, to show you why I am uh, hated in some, not only rightist, but even more maybe leftist circles. Uh, 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 because uh, uh, I think that today, when different cultures are thrown together in what we call globalization, I think we should break the spell of this liberal multiculturalist injunction understand each other. We should understand more each other and so on. First, it's impossible to fully understand each other because I claim we don't even understand ourselves. Like, you know, it's not that we are separate entities who fully know what we are and then we should open. No, liberals always like this endless task. Oh, there is still something that eludes me in that culture and so on. I think quite the opposite. I don't want to understand all other stupid cultures. I can be stupid for them. I, I think we need precisely a code of discretion. We need a code which tells us how to politely, politely, sincerely politely ignore each other. 
I don't want, if I live in a building here in a big condominium uh, where, for example, where, you know, all races are there, I don't want to understand everybody. I want to be treated nicely in a non-racist way by others, and I want to treat others like that. I think this sense of proper <coughs> distance is very important. And I don't think we miss, now I go even a step further, I don't think we miss anything deep in this way. Uh, let's say, do I really understand you? Well, my first, as a psychoanalyst, counter question would be, but do you really understand yourself? I claim that another postmodern multicultural myth is that we are the stories we are telling ourselves about ourselves. That that's the moment of truth, which is why the great liberal motto is uh, articulated, among others, by philosopher, the philosopher uh, Richard Rorty, uh, the basic freedom is the freedom to tell your story, your side of the story. The best expression of this attitude is the well-known motto, which sounds very deep. I hate it. I think it's wrong. The, the motto of tolerance, which is an enemy is somebody whose story we didn't yet hear. It sounds so deep, you know, like if you are just a foreigner for me, I see you as evil, impenetrable enemy. Then I hear all your boring details, which I don't care about, uh, your dreams, your fears. And all of a sudden I see, oh, you are a human person like me, and so on and so on. This is getting as boring as, and this is ideology at its purest, as Batman and all these movies. Did you notice how in the last installments of these heroic sagas, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, what everybody emphasizes is how they are no longer flat cartoon heroes. We see also the anxieties, fears of the, as if this makes them somehow deeper, these films. No, this is ideology the purest. Why? Now, it sounds very nice, this. And even in Europe, we can be worse in political correctness than you. We practice uh, so-called living libraries. Maybe it's going on. That is to say, in some countries, I know about Iceland, Island up there, Reykjavik and United Kingdom, where some local communities do, again, these living libraries, which means the authorities pay members of sexual, religious, race minorities just to visit the majority families, spend an evening with them, and tell them about their lives, their fears, and so on. The idea is precisely this one. When you get to know a guy, his inner life, you no longer can, he no longer can be your enemy. Of course, at a certain level, this works, and I'm fully for it. But there is a limit. The limit is, let's just do something. Let's replace this generality with a concrete name. Would you also say, oh my god, Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to hear his side of the story or whatever? No, Hitler really, and others, really was an enemy. And he was telling him a story about himself. And that story was a lie. And that's my point. That's an very interesting and tragic, difficult to accept insight of psychoanalysis. It's basically what I ironically refer to as the, uh, the X-Files insight. Truth is out there. Truth is not in your story, in what you are telling yourself about yourself. What you are telling yourself about yourself is basically a lie that you construct in order to cope with usually some horrible dimension and so on and so on. It's wonderful to look at all these worst nations, worst in the sense of maybe in an unjust way, identified with uh, 
horrible crimes and to look what stories they were telling ourselves to justify their position, attitude. So this is, again, a very radical conclusion. Let me give you two extreme examples here. One, so that I will be balanced. One from Europe, one from Far East. Europe. If there is a book that you should read, I think, it's a very interesting book, shattering. It's Aldous Huxley, yes, the guy of uh, The Brave New World, who wrote a book called uh, uh, Le Minon's Greece, The Grey Eminence. It's a biography of a guy, a priest called Père Joseph, Father Joseph, who was basically the, the State Department foreign ministry guy of Cardinal Richelieu during the 30 years war in Europe. Now, this guy in his politics was monster, the worst you can imagine. He saved France by ruining Europe. In what sense? He, in this 30 years war between Protestant and Catholics, he concluded a pact with Protestant Sweden against Catholic Habsburg Austria to prevent unification of Germany with ruthless torturing, poisoning, whatever you want. And so even if we play this stupid game of who was ultimately responsible for the rise of Hitler, this guy is maybe the best candidate. Because we all know that the, what laid the foundation of, for Nazism, the ultimate cause was the so-called delay of Germany in becoming a United Nations state. And this delay was decided again at the end of the 30 years war. So a bad guy. Now, what intrigued Huxley is that every evening after finishing his dirty job of poisoning, plotting, and so on, this same guy, Père Joseph, wrote wonderful mystical meditations. Um, he had re regular correspondence with some feminine convent and exchanged mystical notes with sisters there. The mystery is that no way to avoid the conclusion, this is gold, authentic stuff. You know, you cannot dismiss it as, oh, the guy was cheating, and so on, and so on. Sorry, it's at the level of who would be the top guys, St. Teresa, John of the Cross. It's the real thing. So that's what bothered so terribly Huxley. How is it possible to have both in the same person, a ruthless manipulator and an undoubtedly authentic mystic with the, the deepest imaginable spiritual experience? Huxley's answer was to blame Christianity in the sense of there is something in our Christian fixation on the way of the cross, Christ's suffering, which opens up a door for this kind of political manipulation. So he turned towards the East. Ah, is there any better there? My favorite book on that topic, I advise you to read it. Brian Victoria, himself a uh, Buddhist priest, uh, Zen at War. This guy did something very simple. He simply made a research into how did the Japanese Zen community relate to the uh, Japanese military expansion, invasion of China, and all that stuff in the late, uh, throughout the 30s and early 40s. And the discovery was shocking. Except, with the exception of literally three, four, five dissidents, they not only fully supported it, they even provided justification for it. The true horror is to read the works from that time of a guy who some of you, and I see there are, who are like me, unfortunately, old enough to be around, uh, who was very popular here in hippie times, 60s, early 70s, 
DT Daisetsu Teitaro Suzuki, you know, the big model of introducing Buddhist tradition here, where in the 30s he was writing slightly different texts. For example, he wrote a text where he celebrated Chinese, uh, Japanese invasion of China as, as he put it, a work of love. And the Chinese people should learn that the sword which is killing them is really a sword of love. But what's more important is that the same Suzuki provided a wonderful argumentation on how an ordinary soldier should train himself psychologically to be able to kill without having traumas. And he gives a wonderful description of how this Buddhist attitude of overcoming your false self helps you. He said, when you are still identified with your false self and think you are the substantial agent, then of course it's a traumatic. The only way to put it is, I have a sword and I stuck it into you. But he says, if you go through Buddhist enlightenment, then the whole perspective changes. You are just an observer. You see your sword moving in the air. And you see the enemy somehow getting stuck on it and so on. It's depersonalized. She even went so far, Suzuki, as to say that for ordinary people who don't have time to do meditation, total military discipline is the easiest way to achieve enlightenment in the sense of overcoming your false self. He says, when you learn that when the officer says shoot, you shoot without moment's reflection, you are above your false self, and so on and so on. Now, what's the conclusion here? Let me be very clear, again, to avoid a misunderstanding. I am not saying, oh, you see, all this Japanese Buddhist stuff is just a mask of militarism. No. The truly difficult thing is to accept that, like Per Joseph, that Suzuki's meditations are absolutely authentic. It's the real gem, the real stuff. But this doesn't prevent you from legitimizing with it or doing quite, uh, quite horrible things, and so on and so on. So you see my point here. My point is that uh, our truth is not the inner life, mystical stories we are telling or whatever. I'm even tempted to claim in a more radical psychoanalytic way that what we build as our inner life, stories we are telling ourselves, the narrative we construct to face what we are doing is always a zero-level ideology, a kind of a protective screen. So now let me go a step further. All these rules of discretion, unwritten rules, how do they function? Here we are in for some surprises, considering, for example, censorship. Let me take the genre which you will maybe agree it's uh, the most popular, I think, or your only competition. More people than Google, more people probably look for hardcore porn. <laughs> That's your only competitor. So uh, if you had the misfortune of looking some of the hardcore porno, but especially full feature films, did you, where is censorship there? You will say, but there is no censorship. My God, you can see everything. Uh, what can be more uncensored? Than, there is, you know where. If you get a full feature, one hour, one hour and a half hardcore film, of course, you cannot show just sex. There must be a minimal narrative which somehow justifies it, narratively, I mean, no? And did you notice how absolutely ridiculously stupid and self-mocking these narratives always are? Like, I remember one, it's embarrassing even now for me to think, when I was young, you know, the usual story, housewife is alone at home, a plumber comes, fixes a hole 
in the kitchen, then the housewife said, but I have another hole to fix. Can you or maybe, I mean, you are embarrassed. I claim this is not that they are so stupid. There is a precise function of censorship here, which is you cannot have it both ways. You can see it all, but the price you pay is to sabotage emotional involvement in the sense of having an engaging story and so on and so on. No wonder that the French cinema director, Catherine Breillat, romance, who tries to do precisely this, both emotionally engaging, serious drama, plus full sex, cannot somehow really penetrate the big market. Now you will tell me, as many critics made fun of me, they told me, oh, but you are crazy, where do you live? This kind of plumber housewife stories, they are 40 years old. Then I asked them, okay, what's in today? And what they told me, I think it's even worse. It's so-called uh, gonzo sex, which is what? It's like embedded journalism. It's that uh, the camera is part of the action in the sense that they don't even pretend that it's a story. They make fun of it. You know, in gonzo sex, you see the cameraman. The cameraman tells to the actors, move like that. A woman who is being screwed snies to the camera. Am I okay like this? They make fun. I think this is the high point of censorship. They are afraid of even a minimum of narrative. At this level, we find rules of... Uh, we find rules of discretion and all that, all that. Okay, so that I, time is, unfortunately, there are many other things, nonetheless. What's the basic constellation that I want to develop here? That whenever we are dealing with, if you give me a, another five, 10 minutes, what always fascinated me in ideology is the following thing. It's this tension, which is always here between what is explicitly said and what is understood, you are supposed to know it, but it's prohibited to publicly state it. This is the mystery of customs, and it's crucial for our social coexistence. And it's here that ideology inscribes itself. What do I mean by this? Did you notice that whenever you want to penetrate a certain social circle, you have to know the rules from nation to company like Google to a class or whatever. But did you notice that there is always something mysterious with the rules? It's not enough to know the rules. You must know, as it were, meta rules, which tells you how to deal with the rules. That is to say, isn't it that always, I claim, there are rules which uh, prohibit you something, but if you follow them, you are an idiot. Between the lines, they call you to like, do it silently, and so on and so on. Like, I think, claim, I don't know, in my own country, ex-socialist, I'm not saying that you are any better, but it was more open there, and in all communist systems, like, uh, 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 how do you call it, uh, corruption and all that was like that. Corruption was prohibited officially, which meant you just had to know, and it was exactly codified. You know, for example, I remember for a doctor to have a quick, quick, examination so that you didn't have to wait two, three months so much. We, at that point, made the prices for bribery in German marks. It was 200 German marks and so on. But again, so we have especially sexual prohibitions like this. No, don't do it means if you are a man, do it, but discreetly and so on. No? So we have prohibitions which are effectively function as something to be violated. And even much more interesting, this is my favorite point. We have statements which allow you, even solicit you, to use a freedom to do 
They give you freedom on condition that you don't choose it. They, they, they are much more around than we think. For example, I remember when I was in Japan, friends told me that usually in their work contracts, you have a guaranteed 40 days per year holiday. But they told me uh, it's considered very impolite. You are not basically allowed to use more than 20 days. Then I asked them, then why don't you write 20 days? They told me, and they were quite justified, you are a total idiot, you don't understand it. And they were right. In what sense? Because in this way, by giving you an offer, which then is supposed to be rejected, like I give you 40 on condition that you use only 20, this is the basic link. In this way, a link is created between people through this politeness and depth. Don't we have many daily rituals like this? Like, for example, I don't know how it is with you, but in my country, let's say, which is not true, I am rich, one of you is poor. I invite you to lunch. Isn't it clear that I will pay? But even in this country, I think, you have this ritual that when the bill arrives, you have to insist just a little bit, not too much, that I will pay, I will pay, and we both know it's a fake. But it's, in a way, a sincere fake. Or, I don't know, uh, with apologies. With my, maybe you know it, you can Google her, it's not. My theoretical enemy, personally good friend, Judith Butler. Gender trouble and so on. Once I behaved very rude towards her, in a friendly way, but I used vulgar words. Like, I wanted to ask her if a friend of her is also a lesbian like her, and I put it in, I'm ashamed. I said something like, is she also a degenerate, stinking bitch like you? Okay, it wasn't a nice way. <laughs> so I wonder why she felt hurt. <laughs> so afterwards, I called her by phone and told her, listen, Judy, my God, I don't know what it was. It's my extremely bad taste. I really apologized. She was very nice. To, and she told me, listen, Slavoj, I know you. No problem. We are friends. Let's be serious. No apology is needed. But did you get the paradox of this situation? She was able to say no apology is needed only after I did apologize. That's the normal logic. If I were not to apologize, she would have been offended. And uh, I would have been probably a little bit offended if she were to say, good, I deserve the apology. Don't do this again. You, you see the paradox. I made an offer, apology. She said, it's not necessary, but in this way, that's how it functions normally. This level of ideology uh, uh, fascinated me. This, where, how should I put it, it's not only, to put it in ultimate terms, it's not only that something is prohibited, it's that prohibition itself is prohibited to, state, to be stated publicly. That's the mystery why in so many of my books I deal extensively with Stalinism. Stalinism is a very mysterious phenomenon. On the one hand, it's very ruthless regime, killing millions. On the other hand, it's extremely sensitive to maintaining appearances. What do I mean by this? Let, let's imagine a crazy scene, my dream. At least, we are Moscow 37, Central Committee, I am Stalin. I give a speech, you applaud, we know, that's life, okay. Then one of you does a crazy thing, stands up and says, Comrade Stalin, I don't agree with you, I think you are totally wrong, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we know, no mystery here. If you would be the guy, next day the big question would be who has seen you last alive. <laughs> okay, but let's imagine something else that after, sorry to personalize it, somebody has to be blamed, that's life. After you, you stand up and tell to him, are you crazy? We don't talk to Comrade Stalin like this in our country. We don't attack him and so on. My thesis is you would have disappeared even earlier. 
Sorry, don't take it personally. That's like, no, what I mean to say, you know, it wasn't only prohibited to criticize Stalin. It was even more prohibited to announce this prohibition publicly. It was a prohibition which worked only on condition that it's not publicly proclaimed or whatever. Now, slowly to draw to the end, if you allow me, at least I talk too much, at least you will learn why friends call me Fidel, not for uh, my communist leanings, but you know, like Fidel Castro, you know, comrades like 10 minutes and then seven hours, if not more. Okay, uh, did you see a good, naive, but I like it naively, Hollywood film, the best of the Hollywood left, They Live by John Carpenter from 1988, with that wonderful, totally naive, paranoiac idea. It's a story of an ordinary guy who stumbles upon some mysterious sunglasses, and when he puts them on, what he sees is what? What he sees is, as it were, the true ideological message. Like, the guy walks along the street, sees a big publicity poster, visit Hawaii, have the holiday of your lifetime, blah, 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 honeymoon. Then he puts the glasses on, the wonderful color picture disappears. All he sees is the order. Reproduce, obey, enjoy, don't think, consume, or something like this. Like almost a Marxist dream, you know, the glasses which tell you directly the social order. What's, I think that what is maybe even more interesting than this functioning, which is actual today, because today, as we all know, we are addressed not only by publicity, but even by ideology at the level of not do your duty, but enjoy, have a full spiritual life, and so on and so on. You must have noticed this, how, to put it in very simple terms, there were three big stages of publicity. The original one is, let's call it naively, utilitarian publicity. You are solicited to buy something because you need it and because of its qualities, like you need a Land Rover, okay. Publicity says it's the best car, it's the strongest, uh, greatest space, uh, doesn't spend a lot of gasoline, whatever. Then we get this more consumerist publicity, which is keeping up with the Jonas' status symbol. There they refer to what status will give to you owning a Land Rover. It's not, you don't buy it because you really need it. You buy it to signal your social status. But that's not all. I claim today, precisely after 68, we have a different mode of publicity, which is neither utilitarian, these are good qualities, nor symbolic status, but this typical me generation. They refer to your, the mess, to your, to your, to yourself, to your potentials. The idea is buy Land Rover and you will realize your potentials, you will feel free, you will feel authentic, and so on. It's, the, it's as we all know, the experience. And unfortunately, although I'm very much for green topic, unfortunately, I claim that even, uh, that even with organic food and so on, let's be frank, it's mostly that. Why do you buy those rotten, two times more expensive, so-called organic apples than the normal, chemically produced, uh, perfectly red or whatever apples? I don't think you really believe that, that it's so much better for your health. I also don't think that, that it's a big, like, you don't boast around, you see, I have these apples. I think basically it's to make you feel good, you know. I'm not just a stupid consumer, earth is in danger, I do something, I'm more authentic, and so on and so on. So, again, in these conditions, the 
ideological injunction is hidden. But often we have the opposite. And this, I'm sorry, I don't have time. I will conclude. Don't be afraid. Who is the boss? I don't know. In three minutes. <laughs> we have the opposite, where what you see is the explicit order, and then what you, what you are able to see if you were to put these glasses on is, as it were, the bribery. Like what the ideological text offers you between the lines, the obscene enjoyment, and so on. For example, let's imagine Nazi Germany. You look at it without glasses, the message is sacrifice yourself for your country, enough of decadence, of promiscuity, of Jewish immorality, do something for your country, or to use your terms, my country first, and all that stuff. What do you get when you put the glasses on? It says, do this, pretend to do this, and we can have some fun, we can beat the Jews, we can blah, 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 you know, all the dirty, obscene side. Wouldn't it be the same, let's say, in, the Ameri in some nice, small, nice, ironically, of course, uh, town in the American South in the 2030s? The official message is Christian values and so on, our country. Then you put the glasses on and you see. Do this end. We in Ku Klux Klan, you know, on weekend evening, we can have some fun raping some black girls, lynching some guys, and so on and so on. That's what always fascinated me, how beneath the official message of sacrifice duty for your nation or whatever, ideology always offers you, how should I put it, some bribery in this sense, some obscene uh, I don't have time to go into how this affects today's nationalism, since I do have to slowly uh, come to the end. Now, I would also say that another procedure of these two levels is, let me be frank, what were to happen if, upon seeing this uh, on TV advertisement or in a newspaper, an ad saying, you know, this disgusting manipulation, like in Starbucks coffee, you know, like you see a, a child starved or with twisted lips, and then this message of, are you aware with the cup of one cappuccino, with the price of one cappuccino or whatever, you can save this kid's life and so on and so on. What's the message if you put the glasses on? If you ask me something like, don't think, don't politicize, forget about the true causes of their poverty, contribute a little bit money, and you can buy your calm consciousness. I think it's, the, the reason we do it is to make us feel good. You know, we know people are starving there, but F three points off. I did my duty. I sent my $5 per month there. I can leave. So basically, we, I claim we don't pay really to help them. We pay to feel well and especially to keep them at a distance there. A lot can be said here even about uh, uh, charity. Why is charity such a big thing today. But let me conclude now very, very briefly with Sarah Palin and generally what I can say as a naive external observer, you know, like Montesquieu, who in order to analyze France wrote his famous uh, Persian letters, no? I am now, okay, not an envoy from Ahmadinejad, but let's say Persian view upon United States. But, uh, a couple of things. I think that it's crucial, not in any kind of deep psychological analysis. I claim it's already in the message. What is the true message of Republican country, that's how, uh, party, that's how I read it, message to their voters. This change, change, change. But then, of course, it's easy to say what Obama and his camp is repeating all the time. 
What change? Let's look at your politics. What you are basically saying is less taxes, less state power against Washington, stronger foreign policy, and so on and so on. But wait a minute. Republican Party is saying this for the last 20 years, so where is the change? But I think that's the message. The message is, you know, that French proverb, plus ça change, plus ça reste le même. The message is, let's do some changes which will guarantee that things basically stay the same, how should I put it? Or another much more ominous duality that I think, you know, they play Republicans on this populist motive. Look, Sarah Palin, ordinary girl from there, I mean, like this giving voice to the rage of the ordinary people. We don't know what goes on, Washington corrupted and so on and so on. Just the message is what? It's, I think it's a much more refined message between the lines. The true message would be to put it in complicated terms, I think something like that. You are furious, we are also, but we all know very well that, I mean, you cannot run a country with this populist, less money here, more there. The message is, I think, we guarantee to you that, how should I put it, uh, uh, let's pretend that we guarantee that discreetly we will have our experts who will do it and so on. There, basically, the message is, I think, we are playing a game here. We will have backroom boys who will know how to do it. And it's the same as with, for example, uh, you know, when people tell me Bush, I claim, okay, Karl Rove interests me, this backroom boys who do the manipulation. So my question to... Uh, McCain would have been, okay, I don't care if you are sincere or not, just tell me who is your Karl Rove, how should I put it, no? Who will be the backroom boys who will be doing the job? Another thing where Democrats are paying, so again, my point is that we shouldn't be naive to get the Republican message, and maybe with Democratic it's similar, I'm not entering into that. To get the Republican message, you should definitely not take it literally, and I'm not engaged here in any dark plot, like what dark, no, it's in the message itself. There is, it's redoubled by another much more pragmatic message and so on and so on. Okay, I will not go into details now, just another thing where I think Republicans succeeded. Did you notice that Sarah Palin, there is something new about her from what I can judge. When till now we had feminine women politicians who really made it, they, and I'm now, now not using the terms in a precise way, but very vaguely, metaphorically. They were phallic women. They tried to imitate and be stronger than men, you know, like Indira Gandhi, uh, Margaret Thatcher, and so on. Here we have something, I think, maybe new. Here we have a woman who can be sarcastic, aggressive, even if I may use this horrible term, which is not quite appropriate in the strict psychoanalytic sense, maybe even uh, castrating, castrating not in the sense of revealing your fake, your impotence, without in any way renouncing femininity. Sarah Palin does not play the game of, as a woman, I am more man than man. No, she, even in a magical way, unites three dimensions of femininity. What's her image? A, mother. B, teacher, it's clear that with these glasses and her hair, and C, it's obvious sex object, because that's the dream, you know, prim teacher and so on, but wait a minute, 
after she in the evening puts the glasses off and unwraps her hair, what ha and so on. So and she combines this in a masterful way with this sarcastic assertiveness. Like I think it was really masterful the way it functioned, not at the level of argument, but as a discursive strategy that making fun of community organizer and so on and so on. It was feminine sarcasm, feminine making fun at, at, uh, at, at masculine phallic authority at its best. And I don't think Democrats had found a way how truly to answer this because, okay, now this is cheap psychology, I know, but things unfortunately function at this level. It brings, I think they gently, subtly evoke something which I'm afraid, ashamed to say publicly, but it's clear. The way Barack Obama is skinny and big ears and so on, there is something of a slightly emaciated, weak guy in him. And I think all this is subtly referring to that. But again, this is a problem for feminists, I claim today. How? And that's the sad thing. Because the democratic left is so much caught in this politically correct feminism and so on and so on, they didn't even notice that what they were dreaming of, to have a woman who wants power, but not by playing a victim, not by renouncing her femininity, but by violently asserting it. That, as it were, Republicans beat Democrats at their own terrain. It's almost paradox. It's a very interesting paradox. You know, it would be wonderful to go into this logic of how there are certain things which the left should have done, but only a conservative can do it. Starting with, you know, only Nixon could have recognized China and so on, all that stuff, all that stuff. So, again, of course, this all is a fake. Fake in the sense that, no, I don't believe she really is all that. Like yesterday, I also saw her interview where she was talking about that war with Russia problem. And there, you could have seen for a brief moment, I mean, the girl doesn't know what she's talking about. But it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter. We should not underestimate this again is ideology. You know, this is where maybe Democrats are a little bit too naive when they repeat this mantra, let's talk about uh, real causes and uh, uh, real issues and so on and so on. So you should see not, again, my point is not a cheap psychoanalysis in the sense of let's look into some deep edible, but just let's look into the message, which is, to use old McLuhan phrase, which is embodied in the, embodied in the in, 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 the, in the enunciation, in the statement itself. You never say only what you say. The mystery is that what you say, the way you say, the style and so on, can give a different message, can undermine that message and so on. That's, for example, for me, the problem with so-called religious fundamentalists. Not that they are too fundamentalists, that they are fake, they are not fundamentalists at all. My most beloved one, for example, beloved in the sense of, well, when I see him, you remember the good old Jimmy Swaggart, the Southern, who was? I, I had the misfortune of seeing one of his shows. My God, the official guy's message is, uh, you know, Christianity, repent for your sins against ego, hedonism, but his show is one big ego trip. The way he delivers his message undermines the message. But it doesn't necessarily undermine it. It can also sustain it. I was too long, I know. 
Thanks very much for your patience. I'm just sad we don't have more time. Thanks very much. Is this a limit? Do we still have time for democracy or no democracy? Okay. Um, yeah, we have the good fortune of having the room for an extra half hour, so I think we can take two or three questions. Okay. okay. So please use the mics for the questions. <coughs> uh, thanks for coming today and speaking to us. Um, I have a question, I guess, from, from my perspective. I, I grew up in America. I went through public school system in America, yeah. and I really didn't get any background or even introduction to philosophy until I went to college. And um, I'm, I don't know if it's similar in Europe, but I'm just kind of curious why you think there are, are certain subjects that are stressed more to younger individuals as they're growing up. And um, you know, something like philosophy, that, which seems very important to me, um, isn't. And, and what do you think, if anything, can be done about that? Uh, oh my God, this is a big question because f my first reaction is that you know that in the last years, unfortunately, because I think this is a good thing in Europe, the key, I think, is one good thing about Europe. Uh, you in the United States, you have elementary school, how much is it, nine, ten years? And then you have just this college, two years or whatever, and you go to university. But in Europe, these two years expand into four. We call it lycée, gymnasium, high school. High school is not just a short passage. High school is where you get serious education. All sciences are covered, and there we get uh, philosophy. Unfortunately, Europe is now becoming more like United States. But the reason I'm an optimist here is that I think that what, uh, when I was introduced, it was kindly pointed out, I really think that now we need more and more philosophy in the sense of dealing with problems which, if you want it or not, are philosophical, even to solve problems that everybody of us confronts. For example, problems like abortion, brain, uh, uh, biogenetics, and so on. My God, to get an opinion on that, it's not just an abstract question of ethics. You have implicitly to decide, are we free beings? Are we free at all? Are we not? And here, again, the analysis that I made through that glasses, uh, brings out some very funny results. For example, I was always perplexed by the standard Catholic answer, which is don't mess biogenetically with brain, because if you do it, you diminish man to a biological animal, but we have immortal soul, blah, blah, blah. My God, my problem here was, wait a minute. If you believe we have an immortal soul, what's the problem with messing with brain? I mean, I cannot touch the soul. So I think the true message in between lines of this Catholic anti-biogenetic anti, uh, uh, brain sciences experiments is a different one. It's, uh, let's, it's better not to know some things. Let's, let's avoid knowing that because knowing too much there may deprive us of our dignity, may diminish our freedom, and so on and so on. So again, it's not only this, it's other problems where I think effectively that we are at such a crucial moment now, truly not in the religious sense of a catastrophe, but in a sense apocalyptic moment that we have to make decisions which are much more radical. Uh, thank you for coming today. Um, I had a question about how you normally respond to claims that Marxism and radicalism is dead. Oh, I mean, uh, 
no mystery here. And the mystery is rather this one. To put, I will be very short. Why do I consider myself still some kind of a Marxist without any illusions and so on? Uh, look, the question we have today is the only serious question is this one. Is Fukuyama Francis right or not? Even most of today's left, isn't it? They are Fukuyamaists, as it were. They basically accept liberal democracy, some kind of capitalism as, if not the best, at least the least worst, the least bad system. And the idea is just, you know, when I was young, we were saying we want socialism with a human face. What even the left today basically offers is global capitalism with a human face. Make it a little bit better, as Bill Gates would have put it, uh, uh, creative capitalism. You can have your cake and eat it. You can have profit and help the poor, whatever. Make it more. So my question is, is this all? Is this our ultimate horizon? Or are there crises, antagonisms on the horizon which, for which in the long term, and by long term, I don't mean this 200 years, but 10, 15 years, 20, uh, global capitalism will not be enough to solve them. I think there are. From biogenetics, even Francis Fukuyama, you know, his next book on human freedom or whatever, he explicitly says that these biogenetic possibilities undermine his vision of global capitalism. That one, then uh, ecology, I claim, and so on. So I think, I, if you want to know my argument in detail, now, I will do an unfair thing, refer to an, another book of mine, In Defense of Lost Causes. In the last chapter, I try precisely to argue where I see, and only in this sense I'm a Marxist. I claim, let's not be so sure, this liberal democratic capitalism, maybe it's not the ultimate horizon. We should just keep our mind often, open. I'm not now saying, of course, oh, will there be, that there will be a new Leninist party or whatever, no. That is over. But we should, that's the limit of my Marxism. I even don't see a solution. Because, you know, old Marxists always had this satisfaction, the train of history is on my side, how should I put it? No, like we are just realizing historical necessity. No, I don't think. I'm only saying I see ominous signs here and there, and I wonder if global capitalism will be able to cope with it in the long terms. One of the problems I see purely economic is the one with which you are dealing a lot. You, again, as Google, uh, uh, namely the problem of intellectual property. I think that more and more it's exploding as a problem because I think that intellectual property, if you pardon me the expression, is in its nature closer to communism than to capitalism. You have to force it. It's very difficult to contain it within the limits of private property, which is why you get all these paradoxes. If you allow too strong logic of private property to determine the domain of, uh, uh, of knowledge, intellectual achievements, then you get somebody like Bill Gates. I have nothing against him. I'm just saying that if you have a guy who in 30 years becomes from a nobody uh, uh, tinkering in his garage to the richest man on the earth, doesn't this show that market mechanism, you cannot in any way say that his wealth reflects his achievements, how should I put it? You know, it's just... Market cannot reflect it properly. So that would be my answer. But uh, read the book. I talk too much. Now, ah, you want a, a balance. Left, right, left, right. OK, right again. OK. <laughs> I enjoyed your talk very much. I, I came a little bit late, so I didn't hear whether you said anything about it. But I was wondering if you used the toilets here at Google. Um, we have an optical sensor 
Ah. In our toilets. What do they, does it do? Well, when you stand up, it flushes. So ah, yeah, yeah, I'm used to them from so the airport. You get yeah. up and it, you don't have to touch anything. And I was wondering if, I, to me, it seems that we have some sort of ideology here that technology will address even the most fundamental human problems and will sort of yeah, transform but, us. And I, I was wondering. No, no, no. What my answer here would just have been now, maybe I'm too naive utilitarian, but. My, I always thought that they come up with this because people care about bacteria. And the point is rather, I think, how to prevent you touching something. Wasn't this the origin? Was to keep you... So it's, but, but on the other hand, I agree with you and I've seen even... No, this is... I mean, there is to go on and on. For example, in Japan, I was told, no? That it's also a nice cultural detail that in many public toilets, so I was told... Uh, the, uh, there is music while you are sitting on the toilet. Why? Because people are so sensitive, embarrassed by potential sounds you make while you are sitting and so on. So the idea is the only way to make it tol tolerable is to have background of music enough and so on and so on. So I totally, uh, how to put it, uh, maybe even more than eating, sitting is a measure of civilization in the sense of if you want to see the basic of a civilization. It's not look at how people eat, look at, look at how people shit. The true horror for me would have been, and I read somewhere there are already the plans which are even worse, that, sorry for vulgarity, you will not even have to do that, uh, that sorry, obscene gestures to press the shit out. That there will be some kind of a vacuum stuck, you know, and so... It will just be done for you, totally, how should I put it? No, that will be pretty terrible, I mean, no? But, but, uh, but again, yes, I, again, I love details like this, because I think that through them you get that ideology, which is why, for example, in my books, I love another detail. Did you notice, for example, if you know a little bit about history of totalitarianism, how, if you look at Hitler when he speaks, or fascist leader, people applaud, Hitler accepts the applause. Look at the communist leaders speaking. People applause. What does the communist do? Stands up and joins the applause. This tells everything. It's totally different logic. Stalinist dictator is not a master. It's a perfect servant of the people. It's always, I'm nothing in myself. I'm only your... It, it points out a totally different logic, which can be substantiated by other claims. For example, I read in a book on Anne Applebaum on Gulag that... Every year on Stalin's birthday, all the uh, arrested in Gulag, all the people in prison there, were collected, even in the darkest years of Stalinism, were assembled and had to sign telegram wishing Comrade Stalin all the best for birthday and wishing him greater even success in building socialism and so on. Uh, now, think about it. You cannot even imagine the same thing in fascism. What? Together all the Jews in Auschwitz and make them all the best wishes, telegram to Hitler, and so on. You see, I love these details, like your electronic toilet or whatever, which, you know, a small, meaningless feature, but like crystal, it shows, it condenses a fundamental difference. No? Sorry. So um, you gave a great example about how the TV is a proxy for our life. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask the obvious question. What do you... What is God essentially a proxy for? What do we use him or her for? God. Yes. Uh, 
it all depends on what we, uh, on, I mean, first, I don't think there is one God. I mean, I'm an atheist, so, sorry. So if we talk about God, of course, it's about how God functions as an idea, representation, and so on and so on. I think uh, God is many things, but I think what God is, it's a very nice question that you asked, because I think that God is at its most fundamental and radical, not so much a, a determinate proxy, but the very structure of having a proxy. God is the original proxy. I don't know, but he knows for me. I don't, but he does in Christ. I'm not compassionate enough here. No, God is this very formal structure, which is why, although an atheist, I don't think we can get over God as simple as that. There is in the, the very structure of language, not that shit about is there a gene for emotions of God, but more in a purely semantic way. The moment we are in language, there is a divine dimension that we presuppose it, that we practice it in a way. So again, I would say God is originally this very dimension of having a proxy, how should I put it? And it's original, this dimension. I don't think there ever was originally a humanity which fully was itself. No, it's from the beginning that we have this gap. What do I mean by this? Let's, take a, let's say we are half friends. I see you, I stumble on you tomorrow on the street here. And we shake hands and I, I tell you, nice to meet you, how are you? We both know that probably I'm in a way lying. First, I don't really care how are you. If I were really to care, you would have full right to tell me F three points off. It's none of your business how I am. Or that, but you know what I mean? We, it's a lie, but it's a sincere lie. It's wrong to say hypocrisy. So I don't think that we have to presuppose that there was an original phenomenological moment when, when people said, how are you? They really meant it authentically. No, the gap is from the very beginning here. Others, others believe for you, others feel for you. And God would have been, God is this very other dimension. There has to be what Jacques Lacan calls, Jacques Lacan precisely calls this dimension the big other the one for whom we have to maintain appearances, and so on and so on. So yes, it's a very nice question, and I, I, I love to dwell on this, on this. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. It's been fascinating. Uh, Google famously has an informal motto, don't be evil. As an external observer, what do you think our unknown knowns are? No, I'm not saying that the, the, the true message is it's not simply like, oh, in the Freudian way, you know, when you say, this woman is not my mother, then Freud said, ha, 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 the negation, blah, blah. So I'm not saying that you are fundamentally ill. But what does interest me is, uh, what is the model of evil which is presupposed in it? Nonetheless, the inherent logic is that, you know, because why warn precisely against this? What is the model of evil here? What is... Why, why the need to react against this? I think it's not, it's, these kind of injunctions are never general injunctions. Like, of course, nobody should be evil, no? But which evil is there? It is, I don't know, what, is it the perception that you, being the most powerful search machine and so on, are open to the temptation of manipulate? I don't know. The question to be asked would have been what dimension of evil? On the other hand, generally, I think that... Uh, 
in a way, evil is good. No, no, don't, I'm not part of some crazy pseudo-dialectic. What I'm saying is that what is evil? Evil is something which, as it were, brutally interrupts the normal run of things. Evil is a cut, and so on. Which is why, for example, for traditional pagan religions, Jesus Christ is evil embodied. And in a way, they are right. Because the message of Christianity is, it's over with that karma, everything circulates, and so on. It's a cut. So I, I claim that this don't be evil, it's more like we are doing something terribly great, let's not do it too fast or whatever. And I totally accept this, I think. I totally accept this. What you are doing is evil, which means it shakes things the way they were. I mean, something, you are doing something which is, in a way, crazy. You also are changing what means being human. I mean, you know how it changes our perception that basically, if you are not a total idiot, I'm close to it, but hope not totally total, like, you know, it's no longer that bibliography, whatever, you get everything, this life in a permanent presence, as it were, no? So I would say uh, that it's a, a negative recognition that there is a radical dimension to what you are doing. It affects the normal community life and so on and so on. And my conclusion is that uh, in order to say don't be evil, you must already dwell in that space of evil. And I congratulate you for it. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>